If brands can genuinely address the needs and interests of their target consumers, 79% say that they will buy from that brand if they can show that they demonstrate an understanding and care about them. During this last year, we've all just been trying to make sense of what's happening, finding purpose, and for many of us, surviving. And for a lot of us, we have totally thrived, and it's been a great year when it came to business. But that's not for everyone. And emerging businesses and agencies, companies, both big and small, they're all adapting to change. And it's really, we're presented with an opportunity to level the playing field. And that's why I have Ryan Friedman on the show today, because he's going to talk about how to future-proof your business and your branding strategy. And he is like a, he just drops nuggets of wisdom and it's awesome. He's really the expert guy when it comes to cementing your marketing strategy and connecting your brand to your market. What's also really cool about Ryan is that he's an esteemed technological marketer too. So not a ton of marketers have that, but he does. So I'm definitely picking his brain today. He developed a full-service marketing practice, which specializes in launching new and innovative brands. And he's really passionate about what he does. So we're talking about perspectives and strategies on growing challenger brands, through full funnel marketing approaches. We're talking about spanning brands, customer experience, product strategy, all kinds of good things. And he's got over 12 years of marketing experience and has helped launch 100 plus programs for more than 40 B2B and B2C brands, including Samsung, Dell, Lexmark, Philips, and more. So I hope you enjoy all of the incredible takeaways that Ryan drops today. Ryan, thank you so much for joining me today. We're going to talk about so many good things. Welcome. Thank you very much. Good to be here. So before we dive in, can you give our listeners a bit of your background and what got you into marketing and the type of marketing that you do and why why you're doing it? Why is it important to you? Yeah, I've worked in senior client services roles within marketing services for uh, more than 10 years, managing client partnerships and developing and selling through integrated marketing programs. My roles traditionally take a pretty comprehensive approach to driving business for marketing services, uh, organizations across client engagement, BD, and strategy, from building client relationships to working with them as a consultative partner to really understand their business, translate their needs, as well as external market and customer insights into creative brand and marketing strategies, and then developing and selling through integrated programs that leverage everything from content marketing, brand strategy, digital marketing, demand generation, and so on, into integrated programs based on those strategies. And then, of course, working with internal teams to ensure that what we're producing is on point, that it's delivering results, that the client sees the value in it, and that we're all in a good position to take on the next project. Nice. I love it. Well, today we're going to talk about the difference between marketing for large established brands versus the new challenger brands. And honestly, we have we have both sides listening to the podcast. So this is going to be awesome. And I also think that what we're going to learn from both, you can actually apply 
anywhere. It's going to be super insightful. But let's talk about the difference between the two. Yeah. So let me give it a little bit of background first and segue into that. So I've spent most of my career working on marketing programs for large established brands, Samsung's, Dell's, EMC's, Lexmark's, et cetera. A lot in tech, obviously. But I'm currently doing something quite different and interesting. I'm working with a startup agency slash consultancy that specializes in helping new emerging and challenger brands go to market with integrated services that address their branding, their marketing, and their commercial needs. So we work with a pretty wide range of, of brand clients, everything from startups that are just getting into market for the first time, mid-sized companies that are expanding into international regions, and then large brands too that are expanding into new categories. And from this experience, I've seen firsthand the challenge that these companies have in establishing their brands and scaling their business, and in particular, their challenges related to to branding and marketing. And you're right, the experience that I've had can absolutely, and and hopefully the, the insights I'm sharing here, can absolutely help any marketer, whether they're working for a startup or they're working, or more broadly speaking, a challenger brand, or they're working for a large established brand. I will say this experience has, without a doubt, sort of transformed my thinking about marketing because you're not just executing on a program and, and one you know initiative or, or part of the business, but you're really integrating yourself into the entire business in a very strategic way. And I, I think that's really beneficial you know, for anyone to be able to go that extra mile, to be able to think beyond the task, the immediate task at hand and think about how does this help drive meaningful growth for my client or for my business? Right. So my experience through most, most of my career, again, when working with large brands is that it's been relatively easy to generate positive results. People are apt to click because they know the brand already. They're eager to engage because they like the brand. They're easier to convert because they already trust the brand. Yeah. Years and, and in many cases, decades of gradually building strong brands with ample budgets and large teams have made it possible so you can, as a marketer, turn on a campaign and fairly reliably generate positive results. However, for challenger brands, it's often just the opposite. They have limited or, or absolutely zero brand story already developed awareness in the market, favorability among customers or consumers, and very little credibility, if any. And at the same time, they have significantly smaller budgets, leaner teams, and in a lot of cases, much more aggressive timelines, years, not decades, particularly those who have VC funding. There are certain expectations, obviously, that they achieve a certain amount of ROI within a certain time period. And we'll talk more about that a little bit later, too. And so you really have to figure out more or less from scratch how to make marketing generate the results you need, often with your resources. And so driving meaningful- And cold audiences. <laughs> and cold audiences, exactly. And so driving meaningful growth for these brands is significantly more challenging. And so I always like to think of, of challenger brands as, as not just challenging those who are kind of in a, a dominant space, but it's challenging to, to work with them in the first place. Yeah. So, and then if you think about it, this challenge is compounded by the fact that the competitive landscape is much more demanding on account of the fact that it's so much easier today to launch a brand than it was 10 to 20 years ago. The, the bar is lowered so much more. Right. Um, 
it takes mere hours to set up an online store or put your products on an e-commerce platform like Walmart or Amazon, you know, 3P. It's pretty quick to get up and running. And you don't necessarily have to get your products into brick and mortar stores, although that trend is changing. I feel like slowly here, what's old is new again. And so you see a resurgence in, for instance, out-of-home advertising and TV advertising. It's different, but it's it's the spirit is there. And a lot of D2C brands now obviously facing a lot of pressure are looking at things like wholesale and retail in order to, to increase their revenue. But it's also easy to manufacture products fairly cheaply in China, Vietnam, Mexico. Almost all my clients are doing their manufacturing in, in China. And digital tools and 3D printing have made prototyping so much easier than it ever used to be. And then coming back to marketing, programmatic advertising has made it at least seem like it's cheap and easy to drive traffic to your store. I couldn't find a statistic on the number of DTC brands in existence today. I was a little bit surprised I couldn't find that. But according to Shopify, on their platform alone, there are more than 1 million brands. 1 million just on Shopify alone. So you get a sense and you look at Amazon and and I forget off the top of my head how many merchants there are, but there's millions. A quote I like from eMarketer is, the same low barriers to entry that enabled D2Cs to spring up overnight have also led to overcrowding and increased ac- customer acquisition costs. Many D2Cs also lack the competencies to scale their, their brand via new advertising and sales channels. So it's, it is compounding the, the challenge for new brands. So when I talk with them, when I talk with my clients from new or challenger brands, the ultimate question I, I ask them is, why would someone buy a product they may or may not need from a brand they've never heard of when they could just as easily buy from a brand they already know, trust, and like. Yeah. And that to me is the ultimate question. And that's where I think as marketers, all of us can do ourselves and our our companies a favor by stepping into the shoes of of a consumer or a customer, our target audience. What would it take for us not as a proponent of the brand, but just as regular person off the street to, to buy that product. And if you think about it, there's, there's a lot that needs to happen there. And so from the work that I've done and the work that my current company's done is we've looked at, we've done a lot of research and looked at a lot of case studies for brands that have been successful, brands that haven't been successful. And we've developed a framework of five key best practices that new slash challenger brands need to employ. One is offering great products. If you don't have great products, none of the rest of it really matters. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you don't have that market fit, it doesn't matter how much you pump into advertising or, or more broadly marketing, or you work to, to get your products into retail or, or anything else because people aren't going to buy it. Number two and not in any particular order necessarily, is you need to create a compelling brand proposition. As we'll talk about later, the people, while they will buy products that are good and will not buy products that they don't need or or don't think are good, people generally buy brands before they buy products. So it's almost equally important that they have a compelling brand proposition. Third thing is that they make people aware of their brand and their products through marketing. If no one knows it exists, you could have the greatest product, the greatest brand proposition. It doesn't matter. It's not going to sell. And then engaging consumers with your brand proposition through great brand experiences and everything you do. 
And then the fifth thing is making products widely available and easy to buy. And so this is an example why you're now seeing D2C brands go into wholesale and retail because they need to increase the volume. They need to make it easier for people to discover these things, easier for people to buy these things. So that's also really important. If it's difficult for people to buy or it's hard to find, you're going to fail too. So if you fail in one or or more of these areas, it becomes quite challenging. If you fail in two or more, it's arguably an impossible task. So you really have to get all these things right. And there's a lot to talk about, obviously, in, in all these different areas. But my attention focus, obviously, working in marketing has been on the key practices related to branding and marketing. And then over the, the past few years, I've developed some interesting insights when looking at how many of these challenger brands have approached their marketing efforts. And so that's what I'm excited to, to share with you guys today. Oh my gosh. Go, go, go. <laughs> so the first observation is, is what I consider to be an over-reliance on performance marketing. Over the past 10 plus years, programmatic advertising has absolutely changed the way brands promote themselves and their products. There's no doubt. And I think if you're a media company, you maybe don't feel so positive about it, but I think for brands, for the most part, it has been a positive evolution and, and seeing the exciting things that are happening out of home and TV around programmatic, I think is, is absolutely one of the most exciting things that happened in advertising in, in, in years. But one of the primary tactics employed by Challenger DDC brands leveraging programmatic advertising is performance marketing or what I'm going to refer to more specifically as direct response advertising. Yeah. And so we all we all know direct response advertising is intended to get you to literally click through and buy. And so with plenty of cheap inventory and comprehensive self-service controls and the ability to target people by incredibly granular segments, it's really not any surprise that it's become a preferred tactic among advertisers who see the activity is a, a shortcut, if you will, to quick growth through immediate revenue opportunities. This year, 68% of total digital media advertising spend is in programmatic, with a majority of that in direct response. And so the objective here for brands that are leveraging performance marketing is to try to generate conversions as efficiently as humanly possible without having to spend a lot on generating awareness and education and favorability and all those things. A quote that I like from Peter Field is, we've had 10 to 20 years of an agenda led by big tech that says, smart marketers don't waste money on building brands. Smart marketers spend their money on serving pieces of information at the point of decision-making that will nudge them over the line. So that's the key, right? Is that yeah. you're, you're trying to intercept people at the point of decision-making. That's challenging for a number of reasons, which I'll get into in a minute. You're trying to convince people to buy something when they effectively already probably have a consideration list in mind. And if they've not heard of your brand before, they've not seen your product before, but they're already on Amazon or they're already, they've already started their research. It's pretty tough to get your brand and product, if they've never heard of it before, into their consideration set. If you're a, a large, well-known brand and your product is well-known, easier, right? But if you're a right. D2C brand, you're brand new, a lot harder. Uh, again, it goes back to the question, why would someone buy your product when they could just as easily buy a comparable product from a brand they already know and like and trust? Yeah. So that's one challenge. Another challenge is that advertising costs on platforms like Facebook and Instagram and Google have all gone up over the past few years. We all know this. Facebook, I believe, over the past 10 years, their rates have tripled. And with many D2C brands facing financial headwinds, 
and in some cases opting to go it alone without VC funding, this isn't a particularly sustainable option. And I have clients who their ASP, their average selling price for their products isn't that high. I'm talking right now with a sustainable dental health tech company that their ASP is like uh, 15 bucks. So if you're paying per click a dollar and you then factor into the, the fact that X number of those clicks are, are going to bounce, right? Yeah. So you're going to end up with far fewer sessions and then your conversion rate, that's not sustainable in the long term. But even with all the money in the world, depending on the stage of your business, you're potentially having to pay for a vast majority of your conversions. And then on top of that, it doesn't, performance marketing doesn't do a heck of a lot to meaningfully generate long-term benefits that can drive much more valuable organic sales. So benefits like awareness, education, favorability, it doesn't really do those things. And it's those things by driving awareness for your brand, by driving consideration and favorability that are going to lead people at some point when they have a need to consider buying from you. And that's a conversion you don't need to pay for. So take, for instance, a, a jewelry tech brand, a, a friend and, and former colleague of mine in a, in a different agency was working with a jewelry tech brand. And the brand invested a majority of its marketing budget in performance marketing while not spending a lot on brand marketing. They had only 300 followers on Facebook, 3,000 followers on Instagram, which obviously is not a lot. Right. They had extremely low engagement on their social channels, very limited earned media coverage, almost nothing. I'm talking about like press stories from press releases and pitching and, and thought leadership and all that kind of thing. And also pretty low organic search interests as reported by Google Trends, which I always look at as an indirect measure of awareness. And so over the, the course of several months, they spent a million dollars to drive roughly 500,000 visitors to their D2C site. Only two conversions were attributed to their performance marketing efforts. That obviously is not a great ROI. Right. Um, and so we were talking and the challenge boils down to that you're trying to convince consumers in that case to spend upwards of $1,000 on a product that they don't fully understand or appreciate because it's not like a normal piece of jewelry. There, there's some tech to it. And from a brand that they've never heard of and with really no established trust and credibility that, that often goes hand in hand with jewelry, right? And, and so this required more awareness, more engagement, more education specifically than a simple transactional performance marketing program could provide. This wasn't like trying to get someone to go buy a Swiffer. This required a bit of a higher touch. And so by neglecting to invest in the fundamentals of, of marketing and prematurely launching performance marketing efforts, the high volume of traffic they paid to drive to the site ultimately did not convert. And, and that wasn't a winning program, unfortunately. And I'm working right now with a, a really well-known brand that's expanding into a new category, but our stakeholder doesn't want to invest a lot in brand marketing, figuring, well, I already have a great brand. People know who we are. And so he doesn't want to do that at the moment. But the challenge is that even though you have a great brand, no one knows that, that you have this product, right? And right. so at, at the moment, 95% of revenue is being generated through direct response advertising. That isn't great 
particularly given that they have a pretty low ASP. So the economics, again, are just not very sustainable. If people don't know, and the conversion rate is pretty decent. So the problem is that there just aren't enough people who know that the product exists and, and, that, and that are being driven. So my group is, is working with them on communications. So social media and PR. We're trying to convince stakeholders to invest more in, in upper funnel awareness marketing. But until that happens, I, I think, again, that correlation between direct response advertising sales is, is going to continue to be pretty high. Another client that I worked with earlier, we saw when we first started, we saw a correlation of 97%, which again, you know, is really high. Eventually though, after several months of brand marketing activities included high profile media sponsorships, influencer marketing, paid social media campaigns, PR, cross-channel digital marketing campaigns across native and video and everything else, we were able to increase their awareness by 6X. Now, granted, it was low to begin with, but 6X is still pretty decent. And we were able to drop the correlation between DR advertising and revenue down to 70%. Still really high, but it shows how brand marketing and in particular awareness advertising can contribute to meaningful growth. That means that almost 30% of their sales were then driven by organic that they didn't need to pay for. Hey guys, and thank you so much for tuning in to the Backstage Business Podcast. I wanted to let you know that this episode is brought to you by The Draw Shop. At The Draw Shop, we make animated videos that just work. Did you know that most businesses are struggling to increase their sales simply because they don't stand out? At The Draw Shop, we use a scientifically proven formula to create animated videos that just work. With customers such as Uber, Twitter, Google, United Nations, Lockheed Martin, Netflix, and more, we know that creating messages that are impossible to misunderstand, it's critical to attracting more customers and keeping your audience engaged so that you can stand out as the best in your industry. Find out more information at thedrawshop.com. It's fascinating to me. And I think, okay, here's here's where my mind is going. <laughs> There's a certain amount that most, most companies will say, okay, this is the amount that I, out of revenue, this is what I should spend towards marketing. And looking at that, like you're just talking about, like, here's, here's, Here's what came from actual organic search. They were spending a certain amount in actual paid advertising. So the question is, obviously, it would be so great for people to get customers and create leads from organic from without having to pay as much because it gets more and more expensive the more that you do paid advertising. So it's, it's about how do, you, how do you get to that? That's the big question I'm guessing that listeners are asking. Yeah, that is the, the ultimate question. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. When you look at, at someone like Apple, Apple doesn't really have to do, it's an extreme, extreme case, but, but go with me here. They don't have to do a lot of performance marketing. Everyone knows who they are. Everyone loves them and will seek out to purchase from them on their own without yeah. Apple having to drive them, right? That, that sort of you don't even have to let them know that something new has come. They're already searching, like, what's the next iPhone? What's the next, you know, <laughs> they're, exactly. they're, yeah. they're hungry and waiting for it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so that's what, what brands really want to work towards. They want to get to the point where they don't have to push people. They want people to already know them, already like them, already have established loyalty with them. That's exactly where you want to go. And you want to get to the point where when you do turn off direct response advertising, your revenue doesn't stop. I've seen in many cases where these brands turn off direct response advertising and, and their revenue dries up 
very, very quickly. There's a very high correlation. So the way I see it, growing brands need to do one or more of the following things. For one thing, if they have, if they're on a tight time frame and they're engaging heavily in, in DR advertising because they feel the pressure to generate as much revenue as they can, I would say, see if there's a way to extend their time frame. I was just reading an article recently about how VCs are seeing a lot of their portfolio D2C brands hitting a wall. They cannot generate any more revenue than, than they already are, are generating, and there's concerns. I spoke with one client who, who's decided to completely suspend paid activities in favor of first ensuring that there's a strong product market fit and seeing how far you can get with organic efforts. So if you can extend your time frame and relieve yourself of some of the pressure, I think that's a good thing to do. And that gives you the opportunity, like, like this client I just mentioned, to really make certain that what you have is going to be viable in the market, that you're building up a solid base of, of fans and followers and customers. The second thing is to invest in upper funnel marketing to generate awareness and favorability. A great example of this is the startup credit card Brex, who quite famously invested $300,000 in, I think it was one month in out-of-home advertising in just the city of San Francisco. And they were interviewed about this campaign. And they said they really didn't expect any revenue or commercial results to come from it. They just thought, okay, well, if we can start letting startup organizations and entrepreneurs know that we exist and maybe down the line, you know, we'll get some bites, but it did. It immediately resulted in a huge swell in business. They didn't disclose exactly how much, but they said it, it definitely more than paid for itself. So that's a great example where for anyone who's worried about spending on marketing that they fear may not have a direct result in terms of generating commercial activity, it can, and it does. And there's a reason why TV has been the most valuable form of advertising for 50, 60 years. No one's ever been able to click on their TV, but it's, it's been hugely popular and hugely valuable and hugely expensive. And same thing with out of home. No one's clicking on billboards as they drive by, but it drives that awareness. So I'm a firm believer that you have to do that. If again, if you're the greatest product, the greatest brand proposition in the world, but no one knows about it, it's not going to do you any good. And there's good news for for lean brands that are looking to take advantage of of new awareness advertising activities in that it's it's more affordable than ever to take advantage of high impact tactics like out of home that used to be prohibitively expensive and like TV that used to be prohibitively expensive for for new emerging challenger brands in that they're now available through programmatic so you have programmatic digital out of home or pdo as I like to call it and then you have things like connected TV and several variants sort of in that as well, where you can now very, very cheaply buy inventory, con- buy TV inventory and buy billboard and you know, other out-of-home inventory for not a heck of a lot more than you would pay for, say, like a standard media program with a publisher, with a digital publisher. And you're getting good results. You're getting in front of enough people. Exactly. So the third thing is to invest in a strong brand proposition for the market. Make certain that your brand connects with people, which I'll talk about in a minute, that your product is is right, that the experience you're putting out there is right, and that it's connecting with people in a meaningful way. And that segues into, you know, 
a reminder of those five key best practices. You have to do all those things right. If you, like, let's look at Quibi, for, for instance. Quibi, as everyone listening probably knows, they just announced that they're folding. That was the super short form mobile streaming content. Uh, Which I only, I think, I, I don't know how long they've been around, but I only heard of within the last 12 months. Yeah, no, they only started advertising six months ago. Okay, uh, yeah. Maybe nine months ago. I think it was February. Okay. And so and during that time, they spent $63 million on just wow. advertising. 63 in six months. Wow. But despite that strong awareness push, according to analysts, the challenges they had were the product fit wasn't quite the right fit for the market. And according to some industry watchers, the message may not have been very clear either about the benefits and how people can use it. And so that goes back to those five best practices, right? Like, is it the right product for the right audience at the right time? And is your messaging, is your proposition clear and compelling? So in this case, they spent a heck of a lot of money on advertising for awareness, but there are other areas that were a little weaker and, and they couldn't make it work, unfortunately. I think when you ask, and I can say this and nothing against Quibi or any, it's just a general statement is that once you've lost somebody, when they're not super clear, what the value prop is, why, why it matters to them, what makes it like, yes, I have to have that. When that's unclear, you've lost that person. And that is probably, as you're saying, you have to hit that so hard right at the beginning or people are gone. And especially in today's world where the attention span is so short and there's everything calling your attention. It's like, if you're not nailing that, it doesn't matter how much money you're spending or how many people you're getting in front of. They're just gone. If they don't see, Hey, how's this going to make my life better? If they don't yeah. see that, it's like, sorry. <laughs> yeah. And, and you have to connect with people on a real meaningful level. I mean, again, there's so many brands out there and they're all, trying to do the same thing as you, right? It's not just a matter of saying, here's the benefits, but you have to connect with them on an emotional level too. It's like communicating benefits is like table stakes mm -hmm. and you have to go that extra level nowadays. And, and so you look at like one of my favorite case studies is, is Warby Parker, the eyeglass brand, right? 10, 11, I may be off a little bit, but I think 10, 11 years prior to Warby Parker launching, there was another brand that had the exact same value proposition as them, which was to offer cheap eyeglasses. It's Zenny. I think most people probably heard, probably heard of Zenny as well. And Zenny did pretty well over a 10 to, 10 to 11 year period. And they had, they were eating into the market share. And that's a very, obviously very intense category where there's some monopolistic things going on, but they were doing a good job and they were selling cheap eyeglasses. Warby Parker came along with the exact same value proposition. But they went above and beyond communicating the message, we're going to give you cheap eyeglasses. They, can, they connect with people in a really emotional way around living healthy, living well within your means and, and really sort of maximizing opportunities to, to be yourself and be your best. And they brought that to life in everything they did, their content, their email, their website, their fulfillment, their customer service, their advertising, literally everything they did embodied that message. And overnight, they became the sort of de facto authority on alternative eyeglasses, right? Ate up a huge amount of, of Zenny's market share. And Zenny, a couple of years later, 
invested. They they worked with a, a an agency to to develop their own sort of upgrade their own branding. But that's a great example of how you you have to go the extra mile with your brand proposition. Why it's so important to get it right. To your point, because if if you don't get it right, you know that's it. You've kind of you kind of missed your opportunity. Right. And so, on that note, most decisions that consumers make are based on emotions. As I mentioned earlier, most consumers buy brands, not products. They won't buy a product if it's not a good product for them or if it's not a good product in general, but they're using the brand as sort of the first qualifier. So 95% of purchase decisions are subconscious, according to a study from 2018. These are largely influenced by by how people feel about the brands. 81% of consumers are influenced by brand sentiment. And specifically, if brands can genuinely address the needs and interests of their target consumers, 79% say that they will buy from that brand if they can show that they demonstrate an understanding and care about them. That's really important, again, to kind of go above and beyond table stakes and, and really connect with people. So ultimately, what is a brand? There's thousands of definitions out there on marketing blogs across the web. The perspective I like to take is that it, it's, a, it's effectively a mental shortcut for us to, to better make sense of all the options in our commercial world with hundreds, thousands, millions of products out there. How do we start to kind of categorize that and, and rank those in, in our minds? And so it's a, a really valuable source of additional information to aid us in our purchase decisions. For brands, it's a way to provide that additional information to help influence those purchase decisions to by creating a, a cohesive narrative that lets consumers know why they should care about and like and trust the brand. So a good example of this, this is one of my favorite examples, is uh, McDonald's. I read this a few months ago. I don't recall where, unfortunately, but the, the analysis was that one of the reasons, if you ever looked at McDonald's parking lot, why they're always immaculate is that it's part of their branding, is that people will drive up and go, well, this parking lot's immaculate. They must have pride in, in their food. And I can trust them that their food is going to be safe and that you know it's going to be a pleasant, comfortable experience for me to, to eat their food. And that's why they've always been immaculate. Another scenario is if you're in a store and you're looking at multiple products on the shelf, you might say, well, all these products kind of look the same. I, I don't know which one to choose. I know that brand... I like that brand because they care about the things I care about. You're probably more likely going to buy from them than another brand. Gas stations are a great example. I couldn't tell you, despite all the ads I've seen about Techron by Chevron, what the difference is between the gas I buy at Shell and the gas I buy at Chevron. Not a clue. And more importantly, as a consumer, I'm kind of abstracted above that. I don't really care as long as my car works. But I will know that that Shell, <laughs> personal story, back in the days had... What was it called? It was it was a, a a series of cassette tapes with with rock music for road trips. And when I was a kid, and we went on road trips, we would go to Shell stations and pick up these these cassettes. And I had all four of them. And that was something that really stuck out to me as as just a memorable, pleasant experience to listen to the, to this music with my parents in the car when I was little. And so t- even to this day, even though I know it makes no rational sense, I will buy gas from Shell over Chevron. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So I've, I've seen challenger brands take sort of two different approaches to their brand proposition. One is, is in which the product is the primary focus. So you look at like instant pot, or I think most people know instant pot. 
which really has taken off over the past five years. That guy had a unique product. It was a differentiated product. And the value and the benefits were pretty clear to consumers. So he, he talked about sort of the rational benefits, right? And then you look at an approach in which the product is secondary. So I'm thinking Shell, for example, Coke, and more recently, Away, the luggage brand. The products are pretty undifferentiated. I really couldn't tell you the difference between an Away suitcase and a Samsonite or, or any other brand of luggage in a way that, that really I, I care a heck of a lot about, in which the value of, of those features and benefits are, are really clear to me. There's sort of two different approaches then to developing your brand proposition. We tend to look at, at brand information and make purchase decisions along a rational, emotional spectrum. So on one extreme end, you have rational decision-making. This is where products that are novel, they're unfamiliar, they're complex, or they, they're expensive, they prompt consumers to conduct research into the product, into the competitors, into the overall market to understand whether that product is right for them and whether that is the best product on the market. In this case, consumers make decisions largely based on an, on a rational analysis of their options. So Instant Pot is a great example of that. All he had to do was educate people about how the product is different, how it can benefit them, and that's enough in that case. People said, oh, that's different. I'm going to look into it. I, I want to better understand it. And, oh, I, I clearly understand how this is going to be different from what I already have in the kitchen and what is different from anything else in the market and how I can benefit from it. The emotional part of it still plays a role, particularly where consumers can't rationally decide among other options. But when you have products that kind of fit in this category, taking an educational approach to your brand communications is really important. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, you have emotional connections. This is where products that are common, easily understandable, inexpensive, they don't require consumers to do a lot of research, like gasoline, like choosing between Coke and Pepsi in, in, the, in the grocery store. And so as such, there tend to be a lot more of these brands as well that are offering relatively undifferentiated products in the market. So consumers instead tend to rely on sort of easy, efficient, shortcut decisions based on their feelings about brands. So my example about Shell, for instance, because at the end of the day, they know they'll get a similar comparable product, whatever their decision. So there isn't a need to exert a lot of time or energy on hardworking, rational decision-making. No one goes, oh boy, between Coke and, and Pepsi, I don't know, I should probably research which one of them tastes better or has better ingredients or is healthier for me. No one's going to do that. And so you resort really to kind of superficial data on which brand or product makes you feel better. And so it's no surprise that the brands that are in these sort of undifferentiated categories like CPG, for them, brand marketing campaigns that use an emotional tactic are twice as effective as those that simply promote a product's merits. Right. So obviously really, really important to, to understand who your customer is, what the fit is within the market, the nature of your product and your brand overall, and then figure out the right communication strategy. So what goes into a brand proposition? It's from the work I've done, it's, it's positioning, understanding again, your understanding, defining your brand's fit in the market, how the brand competes with and is differentiated from other brands, the value of a brand for consumers, both today and in the future, developing messaging that 
both clearly and convincingly communicates this position, a creative strategy that brings it to life in a really compelling and engaging way. And then also importantly, figure out how to distill that down into your product marketing strategy as well. So that as you talk about your products, they support the overall brand story. So the approach I like to take is to develop a really unique and powerful image for the brand that, again, clearly communicates why customers should become become customers in the first place and become lifelong fans. And this image should ideally be stable, pretty stable. So if you have new products come in or you're eliminating old products, you don't want to have to keep reinventing yourself. You want to aim fairly high and future-proof your brand, uh, which is also important if you're say in like a innovation space or a tech space, you're not always going to have the latest and greatest product. So you want to sort of create insurance against not having the latest, greatest product by getting people to care about you as a brand more than they care about a specific product. And then importantly, bringing the story to life in everything you do, integrating it into every touch point so that you're consistent There's no confusion among consumers as to who you are, what you are, and what your value is to them. And taking the opportunity, every opportunity, to embody your brand's position. This could be in the type of content you create. This could be in the ads that you're creating. This could be the direction for your photo and video shoots. This could be your marketing strategy. This is going to influence your the types of influencers you work with, types of campaigns you put together the way you engage with your social media audiences, the way you engage with your customers through customer support, your targeting for media, your messaging for PR, the types of of brand partnerships you create. All these things are going to be influenced and should be influenced by your brand proposition, which has to be found, which has to be grounded in a really firm understanding of who you are in the marketplace and why, what, what your benefit or value is to your target audiences. So to wrap it up, what do I think it takes for for brands, challenger brands to be successful is build a compelling proposition for brand that connects with people both rationally and emotionally, bring it to life in everything you do and take a full funnel approach that fills the funnel with audiences that you identify as likely intenders for your brand's products, engage with them with content and creative that will drive awareness and favorability for long-term interest and consideration so that they can, in the future, serve as the source of of really valuable organic sales. And at the same time, continue to scale commercial results through performance marketing that takes advantage of your growing number of followers, your growing awareness, your improved story, your increased number of of followers, people who are aware of you and, and also remarketing audiences. Use the upper funnel activities and use the benefits from that to make your lower funnel performance marketing more efficient. Absolutely. I totally agree. Ryan, this has been so awesome. I know that you could could keep going with so much really valuable information. Where can our audience find more information about you and your company? So personally, you can find me on LinkedIn, Ryan Friedman. And The company website is redharp.com. Perfect. And we will make sure to have links to both of those in the show notes. Ryan, thank you so much. This was so, so valuable and so much to to think about, especially when we think about what we currently have in place for marketing and where 
we could go. So thank you again so much for being on the show. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Real quick before I go, have you left me a rating and a review yet? I want to make sure that I keep bringing you more of the topics you want to hear. So will you do me a favor and head on over to wherever you're listening on this podcast and let me know what you thought about this episode. Just scroll to the bottom, click on how many stars, five would be amazing, and then click write a review. Oh, and when you do, you'll be entered to win a $500 gift card to the draw shop that I will choose on the first Monday of every month.